to us, we're going to read from Genesis. And we're going to pick up our story um, today um, from a little bit past where we were. We've just had, uh, we, last week we read the end of the flood narrative and what happened there. In the intervening time, uh, the uh, people of the nation, uh, well, people of the world have continued to grow. And instead of spreading out and uh, doing what God commanded them, they built the Tower of Babel and uh, congregated in one place and tried to make a tower all the way to God. And uh, then God uh, spread them out uh, by dispersing them through many, by having many, many different languages. That will do. Um, And they went to all sorts of different places. And uh, then a few more years passed and we pick up our story uh, at the start of Genesis chapter 12 uh, with uh, the call of Abram. So here's what it said. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his, lot, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And we pick up the story again at chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, and a three-year, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these things to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep 
and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, let me pray for us before we look further at this, uh, this set of texts together. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your unfolding purposes revealed in your word. And as we continue to plot the line of salvation history, and we come today to these promises made to Abraham, uh, help us to see and understand uh, more clearly what they mean, uh, both to Abraham and to the trajectory of your purposes. And supremely to us. So bless us afresh, we pray, with a deeper understanding of all of your wonderful mercy and grace expressed to us uh, and anchored in these promises. Amen. Uh, What would you say, if somebody asked you, were the key turning points in history? What are the key turning points in history? Maybe you'd say it'd be the agricultural revolution, which is Uh, took place between 8,000 and 5,000 BC when human beings moved from a hunter-gatherer existence to actually having a systemized agricultural system. Uh, Maybe you would say it was the classic period, uh, the development of large civilization between 1,000 BC and 500 AD, because that's one of the key turning points in history. Maybe you'd say a key turning point in history was the Industrial Revolution, between 1750 and 1900. Uh, Maybe you'd say a key turning point in history occurred here in Sydney on the 22nd of November 2003 in the Telstra Stadium. It was, of course, the day when England won the Rugby World Cup, a turning point in history, surely. Well, whatever you would say is the key turning point in history, uh, we come today to a turning point in history which eclipses all others, and it is anchored in the promises that God makes to Abraham. Uh, Before we get into the detail, let's just start to think about uh, the bigger picture. Uh, we, We noticed last week that we have this timeless formula at work in the Bible. We see, and we can represent it in this diagram, sin 
leads to judgment. Uh, we saw that, of course, with, uh, classically with uh, Noah and God's judgment. But as we observe, God's dealings with humanity aren't just limited to this equation of sin leading to judgment. In some way, this formula is incomplete because there's another element that needs to be added, and that is grace. Really, the full version of this formula should read this, sin leads to judgment, which leads to grace. You see, whenever sin and judgment occur, God's grace also is at work. And the New Testament testifies to this. Uh, Look at Romans 5 verse 20. It says this, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Uh, Like an anti-venom, God's grace is released in response to sin and judgment. Uh, God's grace acts, of course, to limit the effects of sin and to save us for a bright future. And we see this cycle at work from the very beginning. After God had pronounced judgment on Adam and Eve and their sin, what does He do? Well, firstly, He provides clothing for them. That's grace. He also gives them hope, if you recall the proto-evangelium, the, the promise of a serpent crusher. There it is again. That's grace. Uh, The cycle of sin, judgment, and grace continues throughout Genesis chapters 3 to 11. Genesis chapter 6, sin leads to the flood, but that's not the end. God's grace operates to provide a means of escape. Uh, In Genesis chapter 11, uh, God acts again in judgment. This time, it is the Tower of Babel. Uh, The Tower of Babel represents a coordinated and concerted attempt by humanity to build a society without God. The motto of that society is this, together we can achieve anything. We have no need for God. And so God intervenes in judgment. Uh, He throws them into disarray. He confuses their languages and consequently they are scattered. But the question in the Bible's storyline at this point is this, but where is the grace? At first, it doesn't appear that there's any subsequent granting of grace in response to the judgment of Babel. That is, until we realize that actually grace is there.
but he promises, in a sense, to set the context for the rest of the Bible. Uh, this is the launch of God's rescue plan for his creation. And the rest of the Bible, all the way to the end of Revelation, unpacks the fulfilling of these promises. Another quick context-setting uh, statement and uh, exploration. Uh, Genesis chapters 1 to 11, uh, they have a broad scope. Uh, Genesis 1 to 11 is all about the history of the world. And yet from Genesis chapter 12 onwards, the focus of the Bible narrows. Hereafter, the concern is not the history of the world, but the history of God's people. Uh, Genesis 3 to 11 tells us about the fall and its consequences, and by chapter 11, the situation is very bleak. Uh, the drastic new start provided by the flood has changed nothing. Sin is running rampant. Uh, the Tower of Babel provides a window on the state of human society. It's godless and it's dark. But now in Genesis chapter 12, God dramatically intervenes and he makes bold promises and as we will see they are promises to ultimately reverse the effects of the fall and now when we think about the main themes that link the whole of the bible together uh, we've got a variety of choices uh, it could be redemption and salvation uh, it could be exodus new exodus uh, it could be prophet priest and king uh, personally I think the most helpful theme which links the whole of the Bible together is this, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. You see, in the Garden of Eden, we see the perfect kingdom of God. And it can be beautifully summarized in this uh, pithy saying, it's God's people living in God's place, that's the garden sanctuary, under God's blessed rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. But of course, the kingdom then is shattered by the fall. God's people are ejected from God's place. And the wild beasts of the earth are The promises to Abraham hold out the prospect of God's people once again living in God's place, that is the promised land, under God's blessed rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule, the, king, the kingdom of God. So God's promises to Abraham uh, sets human history on a new trajectory. Uh, the fact that God starts his rescue plan by issuing promises is very significant. Think about what a promise is. A promise is future orientated. A promise is a commitment to the future being a certain way which is not yet in present reality. And so it is with God's promises to Abram. Uh, salvation, you see, is not just from God's judgment, it is for something positive. In this case, it's for a bright future. Uh, in the flood, uh, God rescued Noah for life in a world where things would never really, uh, which would eventually revert back to their old ways. But with the promises to Abraham, it's different. 
these promises point to a world that is manifestly different. It's like a new Eden. So this is what we're going to see this morning. Firstly, we're going to look at God's rescue plan made in these promises to Abraham. And then we're going to think about Abraham's response to God's rescue plan, which is faith. And we're going to spend a bit of time thinking then about how this helps us to better understand the nature of faith today. So that's where we're going to go. Uh, God's rescue plan and Abraham's response. So let's see first God's rescue plan. And we see, when we look more closely, that it breaks down into four promises to Abraham. The promise of blessing, land, relationship, and nation. Blessing, land, relationship, and nation. And each of these in some way represents a reversal of the curse of the fall. So firstly, blessing. The promise of blessing. Recall, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, God pronounces His curse in response to humanity's rebellion. But now, in effect, God promises to reverse the curse. His pronouncement in Genesis chapter 12 is resplendent with blessing. Everywhere you look, there is blessing mentioned. Look at chapter 12, verse 2 onwards. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Uh, Did you notice that God's promise of blessing isn't just limited to Abraham and his descendants? In some way, which is not yet clear at this point in the Bible, God promises that His blessing will be enjoyed by members of every people group on earth. So, the promise of blessing. Uh, Secondly, the promise of land. Adam and Eve lost the land of Eden. They were ejected from the garden. Uh, They are no longer enjoying life in God's special place. And so it is significant that God now promises Abraham a land of his own. Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. Moving on to verse 7 in chapter 12. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar. So do you see what he's promising? God is promising to restore his special place for his people. So blessing land. Thirdly, relationship. The promise of relationship. At the fall... Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. At the fall, they lost that special relationship with God. And yet now God promises to restore that special relationship. Uh, We didn't have it read, we didn't go as far as Genesis 17, uh, but in Genesis 17, verse 7, God says this to Abraham 
I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. There it is, the promise of relationship, special relationship. So, promise of blessing, land, relationship, and finally, people, a great people. Uh, the fall saw the fracture of relationships, and the Tower of Babel particularly emphasizes the scattering effect of God's judgment. And yet now, God is promising to reverse that aspect of His judgment. Uh, God is promising, rather than scattering, to gathering a people to Himself. And they will be a nation under His blessing. Chapter 12, verse 2 again. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. In Hebraic thought, uh, being a nation implied living together in harmony and unity. And that is what God is saying. I'm going to gather a people together. They'll live under my blessed rule in harmony and unity together. So, uh, do you see what we're seeing? We are reaching a turning point in human history. It's God's rescue initiative for humanity. God is promising that once again, God's people will live in God's place under God's blessed rule. It's the kingdom of God. But let's move now from thinking about God's rescue plan to Abraham's response to God's rescue plan. The question is this, what is required of Abraham if he is to benefit from what is promised? What has he got to do? And the answer is this, he has to have faith expressed in obedience. Uh, God's promise to Abraham is a land in which his descendants will live under his blessing and in turn be a blessing to others, but the promise hinges on Abraham responding appropriately. Uh, the promise is called for action. At Genesis 12 verse 1, the Lord says this to Abraham, leave your country, leave your people, Leave your father's household and go. Go to the land I will show you. And if Abraham doesn't leave his current home, homeland, he's never going to reach the new promised homeland and all the associated blessings. So what does Abraham do? Well, he gets out the packing boxes and he calls up the removalists. Chapter 12, verse 4. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. As we look at the, the detail and the, the texture of Abram's response, we learn more about the nature of faith. Now, before we look at it more closely, let's just think together and briefly reflect for a moment on how we apply uh, a news application in this overview sermon series. Uh, this the very nature of a Bible overview means that we unfold the Bible salvation storyline stage by stage. 
Uh, it's chronological. So there's a sense in which we don't want to spoil the surprise. Uh, like when you're reading a gripping novel, uh, we resist the urge to turn to the last page to see how the tensions of the plot are resolved. Uh, the reality is, of course, that we all have an awareness of how the Bible's storyline is resolved. But for now, as much as possible, we're going to resist the urge to rush ahead to the New Testament to see the fulfillment at this point, because that is going to come in due course. At this junction in the Bible, there is a big question on the table. The, the questions are this. How will God's promise of God's people living in God's place under God's blessed rule be fulfilled? Uh, how will God's blessing come to all the peoples of the world through Abraham? And we are going to let the Bible answer those questions in due course as we progress in this sermon series. But of course, we still want to think each week about how what we're seeing applies to us in the biblical text. And so with Abraham, we can profitably reflect on his example of faith. And his obedient faith can encourage us to live out our faith in Christ. And so now we're going to tease out uh, some of what Abraham's faith looked like and what it means for us. Uh, firstly, we see in terms of the nature of faith this. Faith is trusting God even when it's scary. Faith is trusting God even when it's scary. Abram almost certainly knows little, if anything, about the new land that God is promising him. Uh, taking the step of leaving his homeland for a foreign land is a massive step. Uh, it would require him to leave behind all his securities and his certainties. We've got a map here on the... Uh, there we go. Um, this gives some sense as to what God is calling Abram to do. Uh, we know that uh, prior to Genesis chapter 12, uh, Abram was living down in uh, what is now Iraq, Babylon at the time, in Ur, but then he goes to live in Haran up there uh, north of Syria, uh, modern-day Syria, and that is where God makes uh, the promises to Abram. And the promises are, leave Haran and head south down to uh, modern-day Palestine, the promised land. And so God is asking Abram to leave everything behind, all his comforts, all his securities, and indeed his wider family group. You see, in practice, if Abram is going to obey God, it requires Abram to make a big move. It's a big risk. In practice, it calls for Abram to put the whole of his life into God's hands, and yet that is what he does. Abram later called Abraham because uh, he has a name change in chapter 17, he gets uh, more New Testament airtime than any other figure in the Old Testament when it comes to faith. Uh, the New Testament holds up Abraham as the flagship example of what it means to live by faith. And in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer is reflecting on Old Testament people who exemplified living by faith. And this is what the writer of the Hebrews says about Abraham, chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know 
where he was going. There it is. Faith expressed in, in obedience, even when it's scary. So when we come and bring this home to us today, uh, let's reflect briefly. If we have faith in Christ, it will call us to step out of our comfort zones. Uh, we can ask, in what areas of my life is God asking me to trust Him, even though it may be scary to do so? What does costly, dangerous, faithful obedience look like for me? So, that was the first aspect of the nature of faith. Uh, faith is trusting God even when it's scary. Secondly, faith is living in the light of the unseen future. Faith is living in the light of the unseen future. Uh, it would have been clear to Abram that these promises would never be fulfilled in his lifetime. Uh, do you build a nation overnight? Of course not. Uh, God even tells Abraham that it will be several hundred years before his descendants actually take possession of the land. And indeed, when it comes to bringing blessing to all the peoples throughout the world, clearly that is a long-term project. At the very most, Abraham would only taste the slightest first fruits of these promises fulfillment, and it would be in the birth of a baby boy. And yet, Abram moves forward. He lets God's promises of what is unseen and future shape his life in the present. You see, God's promises determine and prioritize his actions. And we see this um, in uh, Hebrews 11 again. Uh, look at Hebrews 11 verse 9. It says this about Abram. By faith... He made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Uh, continuing on in Hebrews 11, verse 13. Uh, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Again, when we bring this home to us today, and when we think about how this applies to us, uh, more questions fall out. God's promises call us to live our current lives in the light of life beyond this life, what is described in Hebrews as the better heavenly country. And so the questions we can ask ourselves is this, how is my life in the present being shaped by God's promises 
for the future, for life after this life? And how is my faith in Christ shaping my priorities and my perspective in the present? So let's move on now to the third aspect of Abram's faith. Uh, we see here, thirdly, faith is trusting God against all odds. Faith is trusting God against all odds. Uh, when God first meets with Abram, uh, he speaks to a man whose wife carries the grief and shame of a barren womb. Oh, just before our chapter, our first passage in chapter 12, uh, we have this uh, insight into their life situation in chapter 11, verse 30. It says this, speaking of Abram's wife. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. And in spite of their constant visits to the IVF clinic, they had remained childless. And what's more, time is now against them. Abram and his wife have already received their seniors' concession cards. In Genesis chapter 12, we're told Abram is 75 years old. And in Genesis chapter 17, we learn that his wife Sarai was 10 years Abraham's junior. That makes her 65 at the time when God initially gives them his promises. You see, the chance of a child is pretty slim. And sometimes, sometime later, when we get to Genesis chapter 15, God appears again to Abram. And now, Abram puts voice to the stark realities of life, and he says this. Genesis 15, verse 1, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. But what does God do? God reaffirms the promises He made some while previously in Genesis chapter 12. God reaffirms His promises, and He does so with startling words of ridiculous, it would seem, abundance. Uh, verse 4, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. such a super abundant way of expanding that promise. You've got no children now, and yet in due course, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So you see, at that point, uh, Abram is confronted with two competing counselors. Firstly, he's got the voice of reason. And the voice of reason says this, Abram, you've got Buckley's chance of ever having a child from your own body. But there is another voice, and it's the voice of God, which says, Abram, trust me. 
trust my promise, and one day you will have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. Which will he believe? Which voice will Abram listen to? The voice of reason or the voice of God? And we're told in chapter 15, verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Abram believes the Lord, and God credits it to Abram as righteousness. Fast forward many more years from Genesis 15, we get to Genesis chapter 17. We're actually told it is then 24 years later, after God's initial promise to Abram in chapter 12. 24 years later, and still, in spite of everything God has said, there's still no kid. Uh, Abram is now uh, 99 years old, and Sarai is 89, and yet they still keep trusting. And then, one day, Abram notices that Sarah is throwing up in the morning, and she's starting to eat strange things like limestone off the kettle. And then he noticed that she starts to wear sort of loose baggy clothes, and she's getting rather large. And he realizes God has kept his promise. She's pregnant. God did keep his promise, but it took him 25 years to do so. 25 years is a long time to wait. But that is the nature of faith. Faith is trusting God's timing. Uh, God's way is not our way. God's timing is not our timing. And here again, uh, the author of Hebrews reflects on it in chapter 11, verse 11 of Hebrews. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Abram trusts God to fulfill his purposes for his life in his time. Even in the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles, Abram listens to the voice of God and not to the voice of reason. Bringing it home to us today, if we have faith in Christ, it calls us to trust God to fulfill His purposes for our life in His time. What are the seemingly insurmountable obstacles that challenge your faith? Uh, what are the voices of reason that oppose the voice of God in your life? And which will you listen to? So, in conclusion, God has made promises to us. And for us to benefit from those promises, God calls us to respond as Abram did, in obedient faith, to take him at his word and to then live in the light of it. But there is one more thing 
to see from God's dealing with Abram in our passage today. And it's this. When we respond in faith, God guarantees that, he, that we will receive what He has promised. When we respond in faith, God guarantees that what He has promised, we're going to receive. You see, in Genesis chapter 15, Abram has responded to God's promises with faith. We're told that again, chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. But then Abram asks a question. Uh, verse 7, uh, God says to Abram, uh, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. But Abram then comes up with a question. He says, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? How can I know for sure that your promises will come to pass for me? And what follows is this strange ritual of God passing between dismembered animals. A bit of cultural background is helpful to understanding what's going on. Uh, in those days, uh, a covenant, which is a, a very solemn binding oath, a covenant was established by the covenanting parties walking between cut-up animals. Sounds bizarre, but that's what they did. It was a covenant ceremony, a ratifying ceremony. And in effect, what they were doing is this. When the parties making the covenant walked between these animals which had been cut in half, in effect they were saying, may it be to me, as has happened to these animals, if I do not keep my word, if I don't honor the covenant. So you see, it's a very solemn way of saying, I am covenanting to do what I have promised to do. And yet, did you notice who it is that walks between the cut-up animals? Abram's asleep at the time. There is only one party who walks between the animals, and it is God. Do you see what it means? God is committing Himself to doing something for Abram without Abram needing to do anything more. Abram has responded in faithful obedience, and God is saying, I will do the rest. And so, you see, we too can have the confidence to know that our faith in Christ is not misplaced, because God guarantees that He will do the rest to bring us home to the better heavenly country. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank You for this, these incredible set of promises which indeed uh, reverse the effects of the fall and promise ultimately uh, Your people living again in Your place under Your blessed rule. As we continue to chart the uh, storyline of the Bible, help us to see more clearly how that is fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Help us also to follow the example of Abraham as the New Testament exhorts us to do. Uh, following his response of obedient faith uh, to your promises, knowing that when we do so, uh, we can be absolutely assured that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and nothing will prevent us from coming home to glory in the heavenly country which you promised to all who put their trust in Christ. Amen. So please stand and uh,